Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Pratt Library, to the night room. I'm so lucky to, to introduce someone who has written the history of the Baltimore Symphony, because I felt like I, I, I went on my life about half of the history of the Baltimore Symphony. So he just put the other half, and now I know it all, which is wonderful. But, you know, my sister told me, she, she said, don't forget, the first time when you went to a Baltimore Symphony concert, I took you there. And it was at the Leland Theater, and it was a kid's concert, and Lorenzo the Clown was going to be there. And she said that I was so involved with the orchestra that Lorenzo came up right next to me and tapped my shoulder, and I did I was looking at the orchestra, and I still think the orchestra is a lot more interesting than Lorenzo the Clown. So without ado, this is wonderful Michael Maseki, who has written this fantastic book. I've read it four times. I it. It's wonderful. You can buy copies for all your friends. And, and I know you're going to just delight everybody. So welcome, Michael Lusek, to the Baltimore Center. Thank you. I mean, it's great to be here at the Pratt. Thank you all for inviting me here. You re if you read it four times, that's probably more than I have in a way. Um, a lot of times when I... I write books. I kind of close them once they're printed and never look at them again. And um, I am just finishing book number 10, which is kind of crazy, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, it's also kind of weird because this program's called Writers Live. I don't consider myself a writer. I consider myself more of a project completer or a historian or an archivist. Um, there's another wing of my family that is a writer, but it's hard for me to consider myself an author. But a lot of people from this other life have developed, consider yourself an expert. There is no real definition of an expert. And um, that kind of fell on me a little bit with not just some of the department store project I've done, but also this book that you see up here. Um, I will say that I, I never ever intended to write a book. And since Christmas in 1974, though, when there was an oboe under the Christmas tree, that's how I became an oboist. And the way my parents were is that if um, I expressed some interest in it, and I knew that um, there was, I had this interest, and also there was a, a family financial commitment at the time, so we might as well, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it right. So I've been an oboist since 1974. That's been my identity, but I also had this strange little passion for the history, and later do I realize the social component of how department stores fit in with my life as far as personally and family and also loving history. It's not shopping, it's history. I like history. And when you see things fall, when you see things that have been around for so long, you want to preserve their history. So um, that's what got me started on that book, Hutzlers, where I thought nobody cared or remembered, and it just was a personal project. And I, I had no idea it was going to outsell Danielle Steele that week or go through six printings, and that just kind of realized that you're not alone with other people that crave history, history that should be documented. And when I, I say, okay, this is the ninth department store book I'm just finishing, um, every one of those stores has a finite beginning, or a beginning and a finite end, because that's just the way the industry went. That's just the way things have changed over the 100, 150 years. So when the opportunity came up to write a Baltimore Symphony book, I really had no real interest, because everything I wrote about had a beginning and an end. Why would I want an end when that's my employer? 
Plus, I don't really, I didn't want to, you try writing about your employer. You see what that's like. And, um, and trying to do so in a way where you are looking from the outside, even though you know a lot what's going on in the inside. And um, a man came up to me just this past weekend at the Meyerhof when I was in the lobby. And he goes, you know what I like about your book? It's not propaganda. And I get, that's a good thing because I, I don't really want it to be propaganda because you ha I believe it's fair. You, you have an obligation to always tell two sides of a story. And there are some stories that the Baltimore Symphony that have two sides. There are also many stories that have one side and are part of the successes and the massive accomplishments that the symphony had over its 100 years. And it's 100 years. How many things last for 100 years? That is a milestone. And um, I, I still didn't want to write the book. I still feel that the centennial was worthy of celebration. I'm very passionate behind it. So, um, but I was convinced by another family member directly in my house that um, she felt that if someone else wrote the book, I would be unhappy. So that's the kind of thing. If you write, if you ever read one of these books, whether it's the Baltimore Symphony book or one of the department store books, you're going to read the book as I, you're going to read the story as I want to tell it. And I still will always say that everything has a story. Um, I don't really know what this is. Oh, this is like a mic stand. You could write an entire book about a microphone and a stand. You could do a whole chapter on the stand. That's what I believe. And... Um, and that's kind of like, all right, you can write a book about the history of the Baltimore Symphony. So I realized the last time I spoke about the Baltimore Symphony, um, which was out in Towson, that I ended up getting too tongue-tied. Because you want to cover 100 years in about an hour. And that's relatively impossible. So um, what I have planned to do today is to tr go through as quickly and as thoroughly as I can, or else we're going to be here forever. And if you want to know more, get the book. It benefits a good cause. I'm, 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 it's, and I'm not the good cause, by the way. Yeah, the organization's the good cause. But, um, so what I'm going to do when I organize this, let's just go see what it takes, what it took to put this book together and what I learned. Because there's many patterns that I've learned over the 100 years that we can all um, we could all acknowledge and look back at, which could help our future. So when you do, this is one tiny little section of the Baltimore Symphony archives. This is just one of probably 20 aisles in, at, the, at the Baltimore City archives, uh, where the, there used to be a Peabody we held stuff, where we kept stuff, but it has moved. This is at 20 Mount, 27th and Greenmount, not far from that. My iPad said that this neighborhood is called Better Waverly. And it doesn't really seem like better Waverly when you're there, but most of these things are climate controlled. This is wonderful. I have studied archival housing and collection management, but usually when you go through these things, the lights are off and you have a headlamp. And that is your task. And um, so maybe there's like too much information that you have, but it's better, I think, to have too much and too little. So that's how you get started. And I have to say that very little of this merchandise, this merchandise, I'm on department stores, very, very, very little of this information is actually on the symphony's first 25 years. 
because for the first 25 years, the symphony was a municipally funded organization. It was the only kind in the country like that. And what is a municipally funded organization? That's something that's a line item from the city, and you cannot raise money. You don't have to worry about, I mean, you still rely on the, the, the city government to keep that funding going, but as the economies will go down, and they do go down during that first 25 years, because we're talking 1916 to 1942, we did have some economic downturns, and the symphony was able to go through that in a better way. So, um, so since it's a, a branch of the city government, city archives are just gone. City, you're relying on rosters. You're relying on the few pictures that remain. I mean, you see, I'm going to show you a couple. You see them all ad nauseum because there's not much left. The rosters, which I'll talk about later, by the time the Depression hit, it's, it costs too much money to put the names in the program. You just have one sheet in order to cut the cost. And um, that, uh, unfortunately you lose some of that history. But I mean, you do what you can. When I tell a story, I always tell a story from, a, from the beginning, chronologically. Whether you like it or not, that's how it goes because that's how I see things. And these are the three men um, that basically got the Baltimore Symphony started 100 years ago, or in order for us to celebrate its 100th year this year. Those three men here are Gustav Struve, Mayor James Preston and Frederick Huber. Just to quickly say who they are, um, Struba was a former assistant conductor of the Boston Symphony. He was also the Peabody Summer School Director, Mayor Preston. And then Fred Huber, which was, who was um, also in charge, or was in the theory, no, he was the summer school director, and Struba was in charge of the harmony department at Peabody. So you had these two men from Peabody who had convinced Mayor Preston of the need for municipal music. Why did, the, why did the orchestra, why did the city, I should say, need its own symphony? I mean, in, in 1887, the, the Boston Symphony had its own series here. In 1907, the Philadelphia Orchestra had its series, and in 1911, the New York Philharmonic had a series. Those are three orchestras making regular, multi-visit appearances during the year at the Lyric. The Lyric, which opened in 1894 um, and was never completely built. That's a whole story in itself. The whole thing almost turned into an automobile garage in the teens because it was obsolete and, and, um, and just ill-built Ill, Ill and um, contrived. It just was not, uh, it was always, that's a whole thing. That Lyric, it's a flawed place from the beginning. It's a, that would make a good book. Everything has a story. You should do the lyric. Um, I don't want to do it, though. Um, but what they, uh, what, the, what they convinced Preston was that having a municipal orchestra would provide entertainment and amusement at an affordable price to the masses. Remember, we don't have internet. We don't have records. We don't have radios. Uh, people were relying on, on hopefully, like visiting bands and, and cor on choirs. Uh, outside of, of the symphonies, even like the series, you would just, I mean, classical music was chamber music. Chamber music put, played in people's homes. It wasn't meant for public viewing or consumption. It was meant just within the, within the, the house itself. Um, so they did, these two men on the outside, Struba and Huber especially, were able to convince the city to allocate $6,000 for the formation of a symphony. 
And that's what happened in December 1915. And this is the result in February 11th, 1916. The actual date of this photo, I have not been able to pinpoint, but this is the first um, Baltimore Symphony. Whether this was for the first concert or not, who knows? Of course, it's all men, except for a harp. Harps are allowed to be women uh, when, you, when you go back in time. And there is Struba at the podium. And when I go back, Struba was important for the fir all the way up until 1930. And I love this photo because I just talked about, too, how chamber music, how music was played in private clubs in people's homes. This is an example. Yes, there's women playing there, and they weren't allowed in the symphony. But you have Struba there conducting with a cigar hanging out of his mouth, which I, I really liked. Um, the book is written decade by decade. And if you look at the 1920s, there's so little information that the Baltimore Symphony lists about what happened in the 1920s. So that was actually the first thing I focused on. And you learned that there were some important things. There was, besides the educational concert series, their first orchestra in the country that did that. One of the reasons is because they needed rehearsal space. So this was a nice trade-off in order to establish a permanent um, series. And they ended up do, bringing that to the lyric. You're also at a time with World War I, and here we are as a municipally funded organization, funds completely by the city, where we just experienced that across the, the ocean, over in Europe, and there was a demand that we stop playing European music, that we only play American music because we're paying for it. God, it does sound like some of the debates you hear. Um, but it's American music, and then to get it worse, it, music should only be Baltimore composers. What is that going to be like? They did actually um, come to an agreement where every season they had Baltimore night. Baltimore music, Baltimore composers. That was one way to, um, to kind of ease some of the feelings of the municipal, municipally fund, municipal funds going towards an orchestra, and because we were trying to develop our own culture in this country. And that's what kind of what happened. Um, there was always the constant fear with the next administration, are they going to keep this funded? Constantly that, I mean, yes, we had the stability once we had the line item, but could we keep relying on this year after year? And... <laughs> what was this? I can't remember the exact mayor that said that they felt that the, that the symphony was having a municipally funded symphony, a municipal orchestra, so everybody can attend. Everybody. That's also a word I put in quotation marks. And um, they felt that it was just as essential as street lights and public toilets. So we were able to keep that allocation going. And when I look at the 1930s, I like to think of it as the decade of five conductors. Five conductors were conductors of the Baltimore Symphony. That's quite a turnover. And a lot of that stems from the whole municipal orchestra structure. Struba lasts until 1930 into a salary dispute. So in comes George Simone. George Simone is a pianist, an accompanist, and has never conducted familiar with music, a good musician. He's in town. Let's bring him on. He's also the wife of Mabel Garrison, the soloist who sang at the very first opening concert at debut in 1916. So he was here. I like to find what 
is each person, what does a conductor or later a music director bring to an orchestra? As a musician, you like to think that conductors tend to just get in the way which often they do, that the job, they stop and start things. And um, what are they bringing? They do bring something. They do bring a certain culture, a certain routine to an orchestra. What did George Simone bring? I couldn't find it. You go through all the reviews in the Baltimore Sun and the News American trying to see what is his forte. You'll look at all the programs, and the last line will be, George Simone conducted the concert. How? What was his strength? Nothing. I couldn't find one thing. There is, I think in the book, I list one thing where someone says that he was a champion of modern music, of new music, which is something, but as far as his quality, I don't know. But we do know that in 1935, we remained committed to the educational concerts, but Ernst Schelling was conducting the concerts, had the whole series going at Carnegie Hall in New York. This was perfect. Let's bring Ernst Schelling in to conduct the educational concerts. This is 1935. Well, no one told George Simone this. So when George Simone found out that Ernst Schelling was coming, George Simone abruptly quit. So now we're on to conductor number three of the decade. Ernst Schelling, who loved the idea of, of municipal music and thought that was the answer. That's what they all kind of think from now on for this next three conductors, that municipal music is the answer. You don't have to worry about raising money. Um, but soon they realize that in order to maintain the quality, it costs money. And any of the grumbling, artistic, financial, whatnot. And at this time, I mean, this is 1935 when he's here. Granted, the one BSO up in Boston, I mean, they have uh, quite a history and legacy up there. Their budget was at $1 million, and the BSO Baltimore Symphony Orchestra was still only at $25,000 annually. So there was a real disparity there between the two organizations, if you want to compare them. I and mean, you look at them now, where they are, how they, that, that gap has narrowed. But um, it's still, there is a gap, of course. But Ernst Schelling, who then feels that he needs, the, the budget is too limited and he can't keep pace with the artistic development that he wants. And, but he does one interesting thing. In order to better that quality, he decides to hold auditions for everybody. And that meant women. He didn't care. If the better person was a woman, let her audition. And it just so happened that he accepted five women into the orchestra in December 1936, much against the wishes of the men, who he also displaced five musicians, male musicians. The men were upset that women were there to replace men in the workforce, to the point where they were even called a strike, a strike that didn't happen. But um, there were even rules where the women could go to rehearsals, but they couldn't perform the concerts. And this went back and forth, back and forth, until finally they came up with a settlement where the men were re-engaged with the orchestra, and so were the women allowed to perform, and that's how the, the, um, the women from now on became an, ex an, accepted, um, an accepted gender in the, in the symphony orchestra. Within 10 years, a quarter of the musicians in the Baltimore Symphony were female. But in order to keep that quality going, in order to keep the momentum going, um, Ernst Schelling couldn't get his wishes with increasing funding. So, he's in Geneva in 1937. We get a telegram saying he has a detached retina. He can't travel, and his wife is sick. He's not coming. So, the symphony had to find somebody else. And they found Warner Janssen, 
also known as Anne Harding's husband. He, who was a movie star, by the way, at the time, a big deal. Whoa, and Mr. Ann Harding was going to come to Baltimore. He was a guest conductor, a very popular guest conductor. It's also interesting because I love finding little details. And officially, I don't see him ever receiving an official title as conductor of the Baltimore Symphony. You see him listed as a temporary aspect, but I have never seen, yes, you are the... Oh, God, I didn't even count. One, two, three, four, five, fifth conductor of the Baltimore Symphony. I, I mean, yes, it's assumed, and it's presented as such. He loves municipal music so much that he feels that the symphony should be paid for, symphony orchestra should be paid for by the city, even though it's a socialistic idea. Here we go back into the debates again. But... Um, <laughs> But he, it's still, we're bringing this certain kind of celebrity to town. Warner Ganson, big in Hollywood, so is his wife. But then again, he needs the orchestra to grow. The budget is only $30,000 at that time in 1937 when he took command. And saying that the organization was on the edge of something remarkable that he couldn't achieve, he resigned in 1939. So we are on to conductor number five. And that is the man there, Howard Barlow. This is taken at the lyric, as you can see in the background. Um, yeah, I, I tried putting some image, images on this um, PowerPoint presentation that you won't see in the book, just for something different. Even though that 1916 photo, that's all we have. Howard Barlow, it was a safe choice and probably a good choice because here we are starting to enter the war. We're in 1940, we're getting into wartime, and you can't, he called himself a plain man from a plain city, from a plain state, which was Ohio, and he really brought his radio background and American music background um, to the podium. And that was very important especially at the time. I mean, war, music was, was essential. They were saying it was essential during wartime to create peace and, um, and just a kind of some, some kind of solace during these hard times, which is true. You want to believe that. It's true. And, but unfortunately, there isn't much peace behind the scenes. In 1942, the musicians wanted to raise the performance rate from $5 a concert to $6 a concert for the pay. Um, it led to a breakdown uh, between Frederick Huber and the rest of the musicians. Fred Huber, yes, he's been around since 1916. He's been the only man to manage the Baltimore Symphony for 25 years as head of the Municipal Department of Music. You can get a lot of control after 25 years, and by keeping the budget minimal and not allow, it's easier, I believe, to operate a smaller budget than it is to build it up. And um, they get to an impasse. To the point where the city government, who is, who is funding the orchestra, says, enough. We're done. We're done for now. No more Baltimore Symphony. Well, I didn't need Baltimore Symphony. We still had the other orchestras in town coming in their series. So the Baltimore Symphony ceases. It plays one subscription concert in the 1942 season, and then it, and then it stops. The last soloist of that first and only concert um, to perform at the Baltimore Symphony in 1942 was Reginald Stewart, a pianist who came from, um, from Toronto at the time to head Peabody. He was the soloist, the last soloist, and then the orchestra went silent. But it was Stewart, as head of Peabody, who realized the orchestra couldn't remain silent. Because first of all, he is, he has a lot of good conducting background, and 
as a director of Peabody, you want to feel that if you're going to have a good music school in town, you want to have a good orchestra. And he felt that that was essential. So he created a plan where the symphony would no longer be a municipal orchestra, a municipally funded orchestra. It would be an organization, an, an, an incorporation, I should say. And that involved uh, at getting outside forces, fundraisers. This Women's Association of the Baltimore Symphony was founded, was started under his watch, getting support groups. The, the Women's Association, now the associates, I mean, they, they were charged with going door to door, which they did on their own accord, in groups of 75 women went through canvas the neighborhoods selling subscriptions for 14 Thursday night concerts. Because that needed to happen and needed to happen quickly under Reginald Stewart's plan, which was agreed to as he set it up in basically three weeks' time. So the orchestra did start in the, um, I think it was December of 1942, mostly pick up people at the time, some holdovers from the municipal orchestra, but he came up with this whole structure. And um, you'll see it here, and you got great soloists with Elner Staber, um, Joe Zaghetti, Lily Pons. I mean, they really, he wanted to do this right. But he had a little bit of a problem because um, the, with the war, there's certain restrictions you could do with bringing, raising funds and, and being able to, to, to share the orchestra um, in other locations. One of the things that I, I, I think Reginald Stewart was one of the most influential men behind the Baltimore Symphony. There's a few men I think that. I'm sorry to just say men. I don't mean to, to be um, to be. I mean, of course, you can say women now um, as well. But as far as like real like three people, he is one of the three people that I felt that really brought made the Baltimore Symphony what it is today. And I love the lyric. Look at the background at the lyric. They had these painted backgrounds of like. Um, palm trees and columns and all. Um, it was Stewart who was able to get BAL, who had a WBAL, who established a radio series with the Baltimore Symphony back to 1926, to get them on NBC radio across the country on five broadcasts. That's a big deal for a small orchestra at the time. It was also Stewart that wanted to take the Baltimore Symphony out of Baltimore. Yes, we were still the number two orchestra in town as far as quality and the, and the other ones that were visiting. So let's be ambassadors. He took the orchestra all throughout New England, New York State, even an appearance in Canada, and especially down to Florida. And the orchestra would always travel by Pullman car. They couldn't do it till after 1945 when the war restrictions lifted. But once they lifted, he brought the orchestra around the country as much as he could, including Carnegie Hall. Carnegie Hall, he takes the Baltimore Symphony. Here it is, it's like how many years old? Six years old. And it's trying to get it, and he makes this, this respectable performance at, Ball, at um, Carnegie Hall in, in February 1947. You have George Inescu playing the Brahms Violin Concerto. Um, and here we are making the debut. He does it again in 1948, brings the orchestra to Carnegie Hall. This is a big deal. And... Um, Another big deal is this. This is a, a window at the Pratt. Uh, uh, um, Stewart decides that on the anniversary, 50th anniversary of Brahms' death, we were going to play and did play every piece of music in Baltimore that Brahms ever composed, whether it was a song, whether it was a symphony, a concerto, or a sonata. And it wasn't, of course, all done by the symphony. He had other organizations, such as Peabody, and also many other church groups. You can kind of see it in here, I mean, if I were to expand it. The different musical organizations that helped accomplish this feat that made national news. 
I mean, what other city is performing every piece that Brahms ever played? Stuart even went to Europe just to find every, to make sure he had everything. And then you get to this. This is kind of a, a, a window of conflict, or it's also a window I like because it's from Hutzler's on Howard Street. I wrote a book on Hutzler's in 2000. <laughs> um, what this is, first of all, I meant to blow this up for my own, um, for my, to share with you, but each one of these are conductor's hands, like Fritz Reiner and Eugene Ormandy in certain positions that you would see them. And um, that kind of, you know, display windows stop you in your tracks. Here's an advertisement for the Baltimore Symphony appearing on W, or you can hear on WBAL. And then you will see the eternal quest for the $150,000 sustaining fund drive that you see annually through the 40s and 50s, a fund drive that constantly only raises $100,000. It is a broken record. You're looking at this. You're looking at every fund drive that comes up short. And um, that gets a little tiring after a while. But um, still, but at least we're able to bring this money in, legally allowed to raise it. Stewart left in 1952. I think it's sad. Stewart was basically phased out of the orchestra in a, in a disagreement with the management at the time. As part of being phased out as being uh, the, the conductor of the Baltimore Symphony, he also agreed that he would never perform or conduct the Baltimore Symphony ever again. Here's a man that resurrected the Baltimore Symphony, brought it to Carnegie Hall, brought it throughout the country, brought it a lot of national recognition for a little engine that could or a little orchestra that could, and he's not allowed to come back. He did come back in the 60s on the last minute um, when somebody turned ill. That was it. And he, this was something that really pained him all throughout, from here at this point forward, he's still a Peabody. But to have this and to have that kind of penalization for not being able to perform or conduct an orchestra that he saw as his own was very hard for him. But we brought in Massimo Freccia. Here he is with Igor Stravinsky. Massimo Freccia, from, born in Florence, comes by way of Havana. And he's probably the first maestro in that kind of... Um, romantic sense and an international flair. Stuart had a British accent. People complained that he had a British accent. And it's like, well, why? What's the big deal that he had a British accent? I think at the time, if I were to analyze it, that if you are an orchestra that's appealing to a more affordable audience, a British accent can be off-putting. So, but not, a span, not an Italian accent. That's exotic. And that's what Massimo Freccia brought. And... Um, he also liked big works, and people loved him. They, he was a very visible, he and his wife were very visible in the community. I mean, she was this heiress of the Cuban cigar company, and really were part of the social, um, social site uh, or scene of the city. I mean, he liked big works, but he complained that Baltimore didn't like big works. He liked Mahler too. He wanted to do Mahler too. I mean, he says it's not our daily bread, but it, he feels that Mahler too is important enough to be heard once in a while. And he doesn't get his way. He threatens to, to leave after his contract expired in the mid-50s. And it's also a terrible time because the orchestra almost disbanded. There's that constant thing you say, does Baltimore want a major orchestra? That, that the board presses that out on, in their defense because they want to get the support. And, um, and that also eventually becomes a broken record. It was Mayor D'Alessandro that actually settled 
that situation because he thought it was going to be a public disgrace if we lost the Baltimore Symphony. Uh, Fretcher stayed until 1958. His final gift to the, uh, as an outgoing conductor of the Baltimore Symphony, they let him conduct Strauss's Electra. That was a big deal. It's a big deal now. It's an expensive deal then. It's an expensive deal now. And it's certainly not the music that you hear, music that you hear every day, but that was a real gift that they gave to him. Um, the next man. Didn't put a big picture of him on here. Um, I love the folding chairs they're all sitting in here. I'm sure, I'm sure that's very comfortable, knowing uh, as, um, as a musician. Um, that's Peter Herman Adler. Peter Herman Adler, who I always say was the most important conductor that ever came to the Baltimore Symphony. The most influential conductor we ever had. Came in 1959. And a lot of people will say that you're crazy for saying that. And I say it for the wrong reason. I mean, not to, not to, say, that he's, not to say that he wasn't a good or worthy musician. I mean, he was head of the NBC Opera Orchestra on TV. He had great credentials. He worked with the greatest opera stars at the time, usually as their accompanist. But he couldn't conduct. He couldn't conduct. You knew not to look up at him. I tried finding people that would say something good about Peter Herman Adler. And really, I swear, the word that you keep hearing most is spastic. I can't tell you how many people actually did use that adjective with him. You knew not to look up. There was one time he fell off the podium into the viola section and no one really noticed because they don't look up at him. And I'm serious. There's times where like the end of, um, end of Dvorak New World Symphony... And then it ends with a big stinger. Boom! Well, when he did... And the orchestra just sat there waiting for... It. And the whole thing just kind of... And um, the, the amount of train wrecks that went through with Adler was just amazing. He had it also, so if you were a principal player of the orchestra, that means if you were in the first chair, it was in your contract where you had to meet with him before every concert as whether a woodwind quintet and string quint, um, quartet. And he would practice conducting with them. So that's how he learned how to be an orca orchestral conductor, because he would at least have live musicians where he would practice. Uh, there was one time, and Joe Turner, who was the former principal Lobo, said they were playing, since a woodwind quintet had to come, they were, he had to rehearse um, Bach Brandenburg one. But it only involved an oboe and a horn because of that instrumentation. There's Adler conducting two instruments where there should be around another, another 40 there that were apart, but that's what he had to do. Um, but I say that he's influential because it didn't, it, it, the, the audience took notice that this wasn't really working out. Even though Adler felt good about it, he felt good enough to hang on in 1962 for a massive pay raise, that he wouldn't re-sign his contract. But he didn't know that the orchestra, the orchestra had already developed a very nice relationship with Stokowski, who was waiting in the wings, which he learned and he signed that contract. But people knew that these concerts were not what they could or should be. They would never compete with the Philadelphia Orchestra. And that's when a group of city leaders got together and approached Joe Meyerhoff to see if something, can we help? What can we do? What can we do to make this, make this orchestra something? And Joe Meyerhoff, I mean, he, I mean, here he is, uh, 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 such a, a leading commercial and residential, amazing uh, real estate um, businessman and just such an influence in the community. And if anyone can do it, they felt he could. And he took on the challenge, though he was not a classical music fan. Admittedly so. 
But if he was going to do it, he was going to do it right. He accepted a two-year term, and that two-year term basically turned into 20 years. 20 years of commitment. And the other thing is, if you wanted to do it, you were going to do it right, but you had to do it on his terms. So it could be very polarizing at times. But his goal was always to push the organization forward. You can, you can argue with him. There were arguments throughout his tenure that people had. But in the end, he wanted to do it right. Um, and one of the things he wanted to do was bring in somebody, a different person other than Adler, that could take charge artistically. And that's where he developed this relationship after a very short music director search with Sergio Comisiona. Sergio Comisiona, who also almost didn't come here, he was going to stay in Denver. He had to try to choose between Denver and Baltimore at the time. He chose Baltimore because it was an East Coast town. And Joe Meyerhoff just took to him. And so what was the thing about, what was the fascination that Meyerhoff and Comisiona had? I don't know. You know how there's certain like business relationships you have that just work. You could say it about friendships. It just work. Why? Like the odd couple or whatnot. And they just feed off of each other. And that's what happened here with Meyerhoff and Comisiona. And it was a real wonderful, beneficial to the orchestra as far as growth and changing this to where we are go- we're to taking this orchestra to a new level. It was a wonderful partnership. But in order to do that, he couldn't come right away. Uh, this was in 1968 when you see this this announcement. I mean, it was announced beforehand as far as put in print, but Brian Priestman came because um, Comisiona couldn't come right away. He was another British conductor. Came and he was uh, given a list of a quarter of the names of the orchestra that he was to let go. That Comisiona pinpointed that if we were going to take it to the next level. Priestman was acknowledged, I mean, acknowledgedly the hatchet man. I mean, you don't want to, if you're a conductor, you don't want to come in and just start cutting things. You're very unpopular, and you, you make waves, and it's just a very controversial move. Give it to somebody else for a year. And he did. There was a massive turnover before Comisiona came. And, um, but it didn't help the fact that it pushed the orchestra into a strike its first real strike, this is back in fall of 1968. I, I promised when I did this talk, I was not going to go over every labor dispute that this organization had. I'll touch on it. I'll mention it. But um, first of all, strikes, lock, work stoppages, lockouts. They are horrible things for everybody. You don't take them lightly. If you take them lightly, then you're wrong. It's something you don't want to do. It's something you don't want to see. It's a last resort. In this case, it was a last resort. And the orchestra was out for four weeks for the first time. The woman you see there is Sarah Feldman. She was one of the first women in 1937 to join the orchestra. Her son and daughter-in-law are active but not just on the, in the um, Baltimore Symphony Orchestra but all, and, and the organization, but with the associates, the Feldman family. Some of our, our greatest champions. There she is. She stayed 1937. When she joined, she stayed until 1973. Um, Comisiona came on board officially in October of 69. His first piece was Mahler II. He wanted to, res- it's the Mahler II is the subtitle is the resurrection. He wanted to resurrect the Baltimore Symphony. And in order to do so, he came up with a series of demands that he gave Meyerhoff. And that was he needed to increase the musician's salaries and benefits. He wanted the orchestra to be a 52-week orchestra. He wanted recording contracts. He wanted an annual Carnegie Hall visit. He wanted to do touring. And at the very end, he also wanted a new concert hall. 
That's a very tall order. But he was able to convince um, Meyer, Joe Meyerhoff to keep looking, keep searching, keep working, keep trying to fulfill this. Many of these demands were met. Of course, then you get into the aspect of growing pains as the orchestra goes on another strike in 1971. The orchestra does grow in size to 44 weeks and gets a $10 a week raise. But one of the great things I like to say about that stoppage was that Schaefer, William Donald Schaefer, really came to the aid. I mean, here's another man that if you're going to do it, do it right. And he came up with this blue ribbon panel where it really analyzed the orchestra and where the orchestra is. And every person that's associated with a nonprofit organization in the city, especially the Baltimore Symphony, whichever position you are, should read the blue ribbon panel report. It's in the most clear terms. We're always struggling to reinvent our, our, our relevancy and who we are. Read what he wrote. It makes sense. It's already been written. It's Schaefer. We love him. He jumped in the harbor, for God's sakes. So, um, it, yeah, read the Blue River Pal if I hadn't said that before. I mean, there he is, Meyerhoff, with Robin, his wife, on the end. They are, again, pillars in the community. Really beloved. Um, and finally, Commissiona. I mean, I'm realizing, I'm glossing over things. If you want to know more about the 70s, get the book. But he gets his, his wish. Groundbreaking starts in the Maryland Concert Center in 1978, November of 1978. It's, a, it's the culmination, kind of, of all of, on his wish list. And, uh, but before this hall even opens, I mean, he gets more of that. I mean, the, the symphony is doing commercial recordings starting in 1974. You see all the wonderful LPs. Um, you know, Vanguard on the Vox label. The, or the orchestra takes its first international tour in 1979, goes to Mexico. It appears on national television with the, with like, let's call it the original opening, or the first opening of Harbor Place, which is broadcast on, on public television. I don't think it was even public television. That was on network. Um, and also the, the, the performance of Kadai, uh, Kadai's Haryana Suite with Vincent Price narrating, which was, uh, which was shown on public television. It was filmed at Goucher Auditorium. Uh, um, th all these great projects are happening. And then there are the first orchestra to go into East Germany and also West Germany. No orchestra since that curtain came down had been in East Germany. And he was able to get it in there with the commissioners and all the influence there. It was a big deal. It put the orchestra in the map. So much so that the Philadelphia Orchestra finally ended its series at the Lyric in 1980. They finally won. Baltimore won. It became the city's orchestra. Uh, the story about it was that uh, Moody, Ricardo Moody, who was conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra at the time, um, he got a bad review in the Sun. And, and he told people in Philadelphia, what is this Baltimore? And never, he never, they were not going back there. And Baltimore was stopped. The, uh, the audiences had been dwindling and all. But um, you read about this tour. I mean, you do a whole book on the tour itself. Um, I mean, Rita Becker, I mean, I, I mean, she recorded the tour. I mean, being broadcast back home so people knew um, what was going on there. Commissioner wanted to play Shostakovich over there. Germans said no, too controversial. He really wanted to do Shostakovich. Um, so we're riding high on this wonderful time, but then we get to a lockout in, um, in September of 1981. That's when the work, another talks break down. And it goes on 
to until January of 1982. The hall is about to finish. It's supposed to end, open that following fall. But I mean, the orchestra's at a $4.5 million budget and the deficit's almost $2 million. But through the help of Leon Fleischer and some other very important people and the Friends of the Symphony, which Baltimore Symphony, which was founded, we were they were able to make up the difference and build a support team and start uh, some of the television marathons that you said to raise the additional funds. The symphony left the Lyric on May 21st, 1982. That was the final performance at the Lyric. The Lyric, which didn't have air conditioning. And um, Perlman, Itzhak Perlman was the final soloist who did the Brahms Violin Concerto. The final piece on the concert was the Farewell Symphony. The last moment of the Farewell Symphony as each of the musicians leave the stage because that's how Haydn composed it. But he insisted that there would be no applause. So the orchestra basically fizzled away from the Lyric. The lyric, which had been the, the, the signature of classical music the, uh, in, in town. The Joseph Meyerhoff Symphony Hall opened in September 16, 1982. It wasn't called the Meyerhoff at first. I should have said it was the Maryland Concert Center, which I said earlier, Joe Meyerhoff didn't want his name on it, even though he fit, he fit half of the uh, foot, half of the, the $23 million bill in order to have it done, have it completed. National TV, you got Tony Randall backstage, you got Leon Fleischer attempting a four-handed return to the, uh, a two-handed uh, return to the piano. Man, four-handed, that would be cool. Um, um, and, you know, this stars, this wonderful event, the culmination of Comisiona's dream. So much so, or so unfortunately so, that four months later, Comisiona says he's going to be leaving to go to Houston. Meyerhoff is crushed, more than crushed, much more than crushed, never talks to him again. No, this partnership, this wonderful collaboration between the two, it's over. He wants the title of Conductor Laureate, no. And um, it was just a very emotional time for him. And um, that's when they do a search. And they bring in, they find this man who had been popular, David Zimmerman. Couldn't come until 1985. Remember, I'm glossing over things. And um, David Zimbin was so thrilled to be take over Comisiona's legacy. And he tells me so. I was fortunate to be able to have one half hour with him. Because we don't see David Zimbin anymore. And we won't. He will never be back. Guarantee that. Prove me wrong, I'll tell him. Um, but he takes over what Comisiona gave him, and he bring, makes the Baltimore Symphony such a, a wonderful place for American composers. He, he drills the orchestra with Beethoven to get the internal rhythm going. He has a contract with Telarc recordings, digital recordings. He takes the orchestra to, to Europe in 1987, develops this casual concerts that are broadcast on the radio live, which are, are um, the kind of skits. With, um, with great um, music there, uh, the recordings, I mean, just phenomenal recordings, and really on a build, and then the strike. The strike, the longest strike at the time in, in symphony history, which, um, which started, make sure I say it correctly, in, in, in 1988, uh, 22 weeks. It took Willard Hackerman of Wayne Turner to make the difference um, with Schaefer's um, getting um, involvement in order to settle the strike. Uh, Zimmerman was crushed, crushed, crushed. Everything he had built was gone and never recovered. The American model was broken. Couldn't conduct another American orchestra. He still stayed on, of course. Um, there's another picture of, 
of the, the, the there, there's the, the, the uh, announcing of the end of negotiations. Thankfully, we were able, thankfully, I mean, I guess like the one, the one ray of peace at the end was getting the, uh, ending up with the first Grammy Award right after the, after the settlement of the strike. Soon to be uh, followed in 1994 with two more Grammy Awards. David Zimmerman was able to help get three Grammy Awards attributed to the Baltimore Symphony, even though his promise 1992 uh, tour to Europe did not happen because of funding. That too crushed him. It also crushed him that he wanted to record all nine Beethoven symphonies, and they couldn't do it, wouldn't do it. He took it to, took it to Zurich. He did it in Zurich, um, but didn't do it here. He left in June 1998, um, and as he has, yeah, we haven't seen him much since. Because he, Yuri Timurkanov was hired in 1997. Yuri Timurkanov, who is supposedly returning next week, we're excited about that. We haven't seen him in 10 years. He is our music director emeritus. But Yuri Temerkanov came in at a really optimistic time for the orchestra. Year 2000. This was, also, um, this was also a real conflicting time to write about. It's 2000. There's a lot of optimism. The economy is strong. We have this new music director. Even though he doesn't think the orchestra is ready to record, and we had already made, um, what was it, 45 recordings by then, he wants to take it on tour. Uh, we do two European tours. We go over to Japan. Um, there's all this way, level of optimism. I'm going to be playing some, if anyone wants to hear more about uh, Tim Rakanoff, listen to my, that series on WBJC on Saturday. I've been doing it, by the way, for the past five weeks, playing old recordings. This week's Tim Rakanoff. These are never, never heard. Listen to it at 6 o'clock. You'll get to hear Tim Rakanoff in the Baltimore Symphony and these rare recordings that we're going to release. Because um, never, he never did a commercial recording. So these are tapes that we were able to, to get forward and get permission to play. Um, but he makes a lot of really drastic changes, and he does so about it with the economy after 2000, two, um, 2001. September 11th certainly didn't help the situation here. And he makes some real controversial changes. First of all, he gets rid of the chorus. He gets rid of the volunteer chorus. That's going to be controversial. Um, he gets rid of some very high-profile musicians. I said before, you don't, it's hard for the music director to do that. He did it. He had carte blanche to do it. Um, and American music, nothing, nothing. I counted that he did two world premieres during his time here. Um, that's all that was because he was more into the Wall Ward Horse music. Um, only two world premieres, and he canceled out of one of them. We only did, he only conducted one world premiere, and that was at the opening of Strathmore, our second home down in Montgomery County. Um, and that was the only time he ever conducted a world premiere. Well, Michael Hirsch, uh, composer at Peabody. It was his piece as an opening of Strathmore. And um, so he did things his own way, and Zinman did not like it. Here's Zinman, who took over Commissioner's work, waiting to pass it on to somebody else. Tamarkanov comes in, does it his way. No American music, no recording, no nothing. And then Zinman sees some of his best, um, uh, most popular, friendly musicians go. And he says, bye for the last time, and, gets, and, and, and removes the music director emeritus title from, from, his, um, from his name. It's the biggest slap in the face. And now, so here we are, um, 2004. I mean, this is a bad time. What do you want to talk about? The fact that we're drowning in debt? The fact that we're changing 
um, leadership to the point where we bring in a for-profit leader to run a non-profit organization. We have Yuri Temerkanov saying, enough, I'm leaving. I mean, he left a lot, but he formally announced his leaving in 2004. And here we are. No music director, drowning debt, uh, taking all these, you know, um, contract reopeners, which are hard as a musician. That's where you're stepping away. Step away from the book. Step away from the book. Yes, we're giving, you're giving concessions. Step away. And then we have to run, and then we get to the point where we need, we engage in a two-year two commitment to a music director search. Step away from the book. Because that was another thing. Whenever people want to talk to me about the Baltimore Symphony, all they want to know is about the hiring of Baron Alsop. That's all they want to know. And I, I know when people get to this book, they're flipping through to 2005 to see what I say. People want to know, what am I going to say about it? What am I going to say about it? It was an awful time. I'll say that. It was unfair to her. It was unfair to the musicians. It was unfair to the entire organization. Here it is. Well, there's Temerkanov opening up Strathmore. That's the opening of Strathmore. Here we are. Musicians urge BSO to keep searching. We announce the first. We announce it. We hear it's a done deal in the sun. We think the search is still going on. It's a done deal. Our input is gone. And it's at such a time where we're doing this within the institution. This happens. We hate women. I have never, you know, you hear a lot of things in the locker room. I don't hear about, well, she's a woman. I really don't. I'll admit that if that's true. I don't hear that. But the thing, the place was so dysfunctional, and then it blows up everywhere in the media, national media. She's angry, we're angry, everyone's angry. This, what are you doing? You don't have any money in your complaint. And it turned by the book. By the book. She'll never get over it. It's like we had a divorce without getting married. I mean, but, but, we're, but now you're remarried, and, you know, and we're, we're here, we're together, we're, we're working at it, we're working together. But, um, you know, step back from the book. You're an outsider. And um, I always, I don't, this is always such a strange picture, but, uh, but this was from her first season. I mean, come on. Marin's done a lot for this orchestra. She's done a lot for this community. I'm not going to say that. We, she didn't get her chance to have her proper welcome. She really didn't. She has a right to be upset about that. Really. You know, this is not how you, how you bring somebody on board in an in a, in a, in a era or, or, or aura of mistrust. It's unfair to her. It was unfair to the whole organization. But, you know, um, I mean, I was going to say, like, what, what do I say about this point forward? I mean, if you want to know, then just come to Meyerhoff. She's there. Um, and, and we're still and doing some amazing stuff. Um, we've done 12 recordings since Marin. Marin wanted to, it was very important to do recordings again. We hadn't done any with Tamar Khanoff. And there is an important thing to, to why are you playing music if you're not going to document it? Why are you doing it? Um, so that was very important to her. Um, her relationship and her, her, um, her, her commitment to, to Bernstein's music. We've recorded all three of his symphonies. How many orchestras have done that? We went to, did Beta, um, Bernstein Mass, took it down not only to Kennedy Center in 2008 when it was, when it was, um, when it was brought to the Kennedy Center, when it was first um, premiered, taking it to Carnegie Hall, taking it into Harlem, getting a Grammy nomination for it. Not the Grammy Award, that's too bad. Um, 
developing, going behind, putting personal money behind the ORCIDS program. ORCIDS, which um, the after-school program which started in 2008 with 30 students, now reaching 1,000 students over six public, over six schools. An after-school mentoring program, but, uh, going over music, um, helping with homework, uh, being a community, learning that, working with musicians, um, just trying to make a difference in some of the most challenging um, communities in West and now East Baltimore. There's another example. I mean, it's, um, I mean, it, it's, it's an it's amazing international acclaimed program. And I went to the mayoral forum on arts and culture, and not one of your mayoral candidates mentioned ORCIDs at every possible opportunity. And if this is on a podcast, I tell you all that's told about music education, acknowledge this. This is what's working that's already working that you say you champion. Here was your opportunity to mention it and to look intelligent. Um, all right, I'll get off my high horse a little bit because, I mean, ORCIDS is its own. I mean, we could have another program on ORCIDS, of course. And um, uh, this is the rusty, the way rusty musicians, which were people like they had played trombone in high school, come join us for a, a night and see what it's like. And then we had the academy. And um, this is all Marin's efforts to reach out, not just to the young, but also the, to the older, um, mature audiences and musicians. I mean, there, we need advocates. Why not bring them back to, the, to music? Look at this orchestra. I don't know how many people are all in there, but they come here for a week in June. And it's kind of like, you know, I hate when they say fantasy camp, but it is a little bit like that because you never experience what it's like. I mean, we're here at our, at our 100th anniversary, which is this year. And, you know, you, you look, and you're like, well, where is the future? People ask, what's the next 100 years? And they I don't know. I don't know. I try to work with that in the book and, um, and think, uh, well, where is the next 100 years? And I also, the easy thing, well, first, the easy thing is to say, I don't know. The second easiest thing, next easiest thing to say is, well, I don't think the orchestra thought about the, first, the next 100 years when it first started 100 years ago. But um, the third thing is to probably say that um, nothing is going to go forward without um, champions, without advocates, without people in the community willing to stand up together with something that we believe in. We have, um, we have challenges with, as we challenge the internet technology. You sit there and you sit across from one of the world's leading soloists. And when I do this book and you're acting like a, a newspaper reporter and they tell you the concert halls will be obsolete in five years. The Meyerhoff will be closed in five years. Obsolete. Music is on the internet. 24-7. That's where it is. The technology is wonderful. You can just access it at any time. We could play. But as far as being this full permanent part of the community. You have a major soloist saying you're obsolete. That's not going to push it. Plus, uh, as David Zinman says, I'll, get, I'll, I'll stop getting my speech box a little bit. Um, he says, first of all, like baseball. Kids learn how to play baseball. Kids see baseball. And that makes them interested in baseball. Need to make sure kids see musicians. Yes. Get them. They'll encourage them to to bring it to themselves, but they need to see it. They need access to it. I'd love to bring more kids into the, into the concert hall, whether it means bringing them to the concert hall or we got to go out to them so they could see this. That's important. 
because people see baseball and they like that. Let them see an orchestra. We do a, a program in Montgomery County where we're in the classroom, like no farther from there, and they see you turning red. That's cool. They think you're a freak, but then you tell them, you show them how you can hold a note for 60 seconds without breathing, and they think you're a hero. Um, but all that kind of bringing, showing what it takes. Um, I, I, I always show this because this is probably the most personal part of this book is the most sterile part of the book, maybe to you. Um, and I, not enough people realize what this meant to me. And since you've gathered here, and I know we're coming to an end, and I'm, I'm aware of that. I have to tell you, I always think it's important, I love it when I see historical books that have a roster of all the people that came through. And um, this roster, there is, it's taken from programs that date back of what I have to 1916. And what I did was I did it all by hand, putting every instrument, every person. And this is going through certain decades, going through every, well, no. But no, the, the one thing, though, about it is not to get all weepy or whatever. I did this while my father was in the hospital. And his decline, you sit there with somebody. What do you do? There's not much you can do. Here is a man that's 91 with, a, with all the life in the world, boom, hit in, the, in, in, in with an emergency, in an intensive care program. You sit there. You watch. You have nothing to do. People don't realize that that's what, the, that's what was going through my head. Although I'm not trying to get all sentimental and all that kind of thing on you. But it, that's... Oh, thank you. But that's what, this, that's what was going on during this. And I'm proud of it. I know he'd be proud of it. I'm also proud in here, too, that this column is oboes. And um, my name is in there. Jane Marvine's name, name is in there. English horn player. Catherine Nealman's name is in here. And underneath Jane Marvine, Mitch Miller played principal oboe from 1940 to 1942. Sing along with Mitch on top of Old Smokey. Um, so that's a little bit about the book. The book was a real up, down, hill, valley. There's a lot we can learn by looking back and see how we got there while still looking forward. So that's my story of how I did it, just as if I were to do Detroit, Atlanta, Minnesota, whatever. If I was engaged to write a book, I tried to do it the way I did it here and to try to be a conscientious outsider. Um, knowing too much, but trying to be fair, but like maybe Joe Meyerhoff, it was going to be done my way and done right. So, any questions, I'd be happy to take them. I got one. Yes. When you was mentioning about female playing a harp, uh -huh. I, was saying, I was saying to myself, you know, harp will, harp will march on that. <laughs> I know. Yeah, but then uh, there's a great thing I wish I had. I don't know why it's okay for a woman to play a harp. I don't know why. But then when they had auditions, after we accepted women were, okay, we can bring them into the orchestra, there was a talk about um, women joining it and talking about the audition process. And there was one woman that did some quite remarkable things with a kettle drum. <laughs> that was in the, in the Baltimore Sun. It's like, I don't know what quite remarkable thing she would have done with a kettle drum. But it was just like... <laughs> Any questions? Thank you for coming. Thank you to the Pratt for having us there. There are books out there. 
buy the book. Thank you. Thank you.